0: All right, let If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're actually going to be kind of exploring a chunk from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 all the way to 10, but you can camp out in 10 a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Has anyone in here ever had a moment that felt like culture shock? Like genuine culture shock? Maybe that's because you went to a country where you don't understand any of the customs or norms or languages, or maybe you had a religious experience that was really foreign, and you're like, oh, this is shocking. I don't know how to articulate or navigate or make sense of this space. Uh, a few years ago, this is three years ago, Tori and I and a few friends traveled to the Czech Republic to go to Prague, which was an amazing trip. It's a beautiful city, beautiful food, beautiful people. Like it's, it was really just an amazing moment. And one of the final nights that we were there, we're in this like little terrace restaurant and we're surrounded by this like thousand year old wall and it's it's a beautiful environment. There's like grass underneath us, these huge trees that are growing all around. We're having the best meal that we've probably had while we're in Prague because we're there with our family. We're there with some friends and friends that live in Prague and so trying to make the most of it. And there are some kids like at the restaurant with their family, which I don't know if you've ever been to Europe, but they, they tend to engage kids in adult spaces differently. So kids are just They participate more, I feel like, in adult spaces than they do in Utah. So there's these kids at this nice restaurant, playing around, not disturbing anybody at all. And I see, like, from the corner of my eye, a little girl walk up to her mom. She says something. I don't know what it is. And then her mom grabs her hand, leads her into the corner of the terrace near a wall, opens her arms like this. The little girl pops down, sits down in her arms, and then just goes to the bathroom. And I was like, what? What? what is happening? I am eating. What are you doing? And then as I noticed it, like, this just happened all throughout Prague. Like, everywhere we'd go, there'd just be, like, parents, like, parent pottying, like, with their kids, like, in gardens or in places. It was maybe the most, like, amazing thing I'd ever seen while I was in Prague. Just, uh, it's a different different strategy. Nothing wrong with it. But it does force you to ask the question, why did my mom never do that for me? She's right there. And that's what culture shock does. I love moments of culture shock because a a moment of culture shock, as small as it might be, or as significant as it might be, the thing it does is it requires you to ask a question of why. Why do we do the things the way that we do them? And why does this other culture, or these other people, or this other place, or this other religion, or this other tradition, why do they do things the way that they do? And often it's not a question of morals. It's not a question of right v. wrong. It's a question of customs or traditions or norms. And without moments of like kind of shock in culture, it's really easy for us as we live at home to just fall into routines and norms and rituals. This is how things go, and this is how normal life goes, and this is how we proceed, and this is how we live. And we don't often question those things until something dramatic happens to force us to say, oh, why do we do it this way? I think that, that lack of culture shock is one of the things that makes being a follower of Jesus today hardest. Is that we rarely experience any shock between our faith and the story of our faith and the culture we live in. Because our faith and our society have learned to live hand in hand for so long that it rarely feels shocking, and we rarely know when to ask why or how to ask why or how to question whether or not this thing that we do is normal or good. They've just grown accustomed to one another, and so we have grown accustomed to them in the rhythms and norms. But it has not always been that way. When the gospel first touches ground in human lives, it immediately causes culture shock. Right, the story of Jesus, it first comes to a small community of Jewish converts, and everything in their life is called into question as the story of Jesus like, emerges in the midst of them. They've had all these norms and rituals and habits, and they have to ask, should we do these things? Like our whole experience with God has happened at a temple. Should we still go there? Jesus said he's the temple, and then he's saying that we're the temple. And he said He's sent his spirit, so do we still go here? Do we still do the laws and customs and rituals of this place? Should we cut our hair this way? Should we wear these kinds of clothes? Should we follow these kinds of food laws, these kinds of moral laws? How do we navigate this new reality with the one that we are familiar with? There's a culture shock between the kingdom of Jesus and the norms that we had lived in, and it spreads even further. So this Jewish community has to ask this question of, well, what does it look like to live in light of Jesus in this world, but then it spreads beyond this Jewish community into non-Jewish areas. And so a new set of questions, a new culture shock emerges. You have these Jewish disciples who are bringing the message of Jesus, and that's conflicting hard with the culture they're engaging in. Because all of a sudden, these Christians are saying like, well, we were told not to go to these places, not to engage in these kinds of customs and traditions. Does the gospel change all of that? And we've actually mixed the gospel with our customs and our norms and our laws, but like none of these people that are hearing the news now have any kind of Jewish history or tradition. And so what do they do? What customs and norms should they hold on to? Or what gets rejected? Or what gets rebuilt? Right, in both moments, there is a dramatic culture shock between the story of the gospel and the culture that it's emerging into. And that is exactly what's happening in the book of Corinthians. In fact, this is actually what's happening all throughout the New Testament letters. Oftentimes questions will emerge and someone like Paul will hear that a question is happening and say like, okay, in light of what the gospel is doing, in light of our tradition, in light of how we're discerning the spirit of God moving, like this is what we think. This is how you handle food, or this is how you handle going to the temple, or this is how you handle circumcision, or this is how you handle these two kind of conflicting positions that are emerging in the community. And that is what you have happening in the book of Corinthians. The gospel has spread to one of the most strange places if you're an early Jewish believer. Corinth was a Greek city, overwhelmingly Greco-Roman in culture. It worships a pantheon of different gods. It cares about things in a fundamentally different way than early Palestinian Jewish communities would have. They have a different value system. They think about things differently, a different political structure, different ethics. And yet, this like news about Jesus is just ripping across Corinth. And people who have no Jewish customs or histories are converting to be followers of Jesus. And so it's causing intense culture shock, and new questions are being asked every single day. Like, what do we do about these things that we've believed and done and heard and practiced in light of the gospel? And so in the first part of the book of Corinthians, Paul addresses unity in the church because you have Jewish believers colliding with these, like, non-Jewish believers, and they're trying to figure out, well, how do we do life together in light of the gospel? It says we're one, but both of us believe we're not one. And so what does it mean to, like, do life together in light of the gospel? How do we merge rich and poor together? How do we practice reconciliation and unity in light of the gospel? In sections five through seven, Paul begins to have a conversation around sex because he's like, hey, the gospel changes everything you knew. And the Corinths had an identity and theology and philosophy around sex, and the Jews had a philosophy and identity and theology around sex. And Paul's like, it's radically changed in light of the gospel. So how do we navigate that? And what does it lead to? In sections 11 and 14, Paul addresses how the gospel changes gathering together. He's like the way you gather and the means by which you gather and the way you practice gathering together looks differently in light of the gospel. But then you have this really strange moment in sections 11, 8 and 10, where Paul addresses the issue of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And he's like, in light of the gospel, it says something about meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And I feel like at first glance, that is such a weird thing to talk about in 21st century America. Like, it reminds me, I don't know if anybody remembers this, if you were like a nerd in the 90s, but if you were, this will have a lot of significance to you. But in the 90s and 80s, there was this, uh, what is often referred to as, like, the uh, satanic panic, where things like D&D were really, uh, like, ostracized because people were really nervous that it was somehow connected to the occult. And when I read this, I was like, is that what's happening? Like, is this, like, superstitious? Is this, like, mystical? Like, what is the issue with meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And so I started digging in, and for these early Christians, the issue is more than just superstition. Is said, if you're a Jewish convert— you believe that you shouldn't mix with certain things, that certain things are impure and that the impurity of something can actually have implications for yourself. And so you're like, I don't want to engage in meat that's been sacrificed to idols, even if I don't know if there's some mystical power there. Like, I still think there's something wrong there according to my tradition. So I'm nervous about that. But then you have another group of people who's like, well, even if there's nothing superstitious about it at all, would be buying that meat, supporting something that's unjust or evil? So maybe I should avoid it there. And then you have a third party who's like, it doesn't matter at all. Christ's freedom covers all things, and so it's fine to do whatever we want. And so you have this tension in the community, which is, how do you handle something that there are no easy answers for? How do you answer questions that Jesus did not answer? How does the church navigate issues and complexities and moments in culture, especially moments that are wrapped up in real people's lives, when there is no clear, articulated answer already prescribed and laid down in Scripture? How does the church answer questions it does not have easy answers to? Jesus talked about sex, he talked about money, talked a lot about politics and unity. He didn't mention meat sacrificed to idols. So, what is the church at Corinth supposed to do? How are they supposed to engage this issue, especially since it's wrapped up in people's lives? Some community members of the church have stopped going to dinner with people, stopped spreading the good news of Jesus the way that it had been spread, which is around table fellowship, because they were so nervous of something bad happening by eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. So, they're like, well, we can't go to other people's homes, we can't spread the gospel. So it's not an arbitrary philosophical issue. It's wrapped up in people's lives. So how do we answer questions we don't have easy answers to? And if you look at Paul's context, there's kind of two ways that the people of Corinth are answering the questions. The first one is just to withdraw from the question altogether. The earliest converts to Christianity were Jewish believers, and oftentimes they would find themselves in a place like Rome, because when Rome conquered Jerusalem, the Jews were dispersed throughout the kind of like the conquered world. So you have these like Jewish community members who are in this Greek city. They have a heritage and a tradition and a faith that they are afraid of losing. That they are afraid of compromising. And so they begin to build like Jewish enclaves in Corinth. They build synagogues, like little Jewish churches. They start Jewish businesses in order to protect and preserve their culture. They created kosher stores and markets. Some Jewish community members actually were so dramatic that they leave the city altogether to develop little desert ascetic communities, which is where we get things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jewish communities so we are like, we got to preserve, we got to protect, we got to hold on to the tradition that we were given and inherited and make sure that it stays right and pure and good. In practice, withdrawal looks like otherness and difference. Looks like otherness and difference, right? It's easy to tell me apart from an Orthodox Jew. And if you can't, that's on you. If you've lived in Utah long enough, it's easy to separate out who's a part of which religious group. If you were part of conservative evangelicalism long enough, it's easy to tell who grew up in youth group and who is a part of that Christian subculture. You can tell who values difference and distinctiveness because it creates a subculture. So Christians started Christian music companies, and they started Christian schools and Christian colleges and even Christian insurance companies because there was something sacred to be preserved. I think if you grew up in that, it's easy to criticize, but at the heart of it is this value of holiness which is this beautiful belief that we are connected to the presence of God and that the presence of God will shape us into a kind of people, a distinct kind of people with a distinct ethics, a distinct way of life, a distinct way of inhabiting in this world. And so there is something beautiful and and right about the value of holiness and the way it forms us into a kind of people who are trying to resemble God and hold on to the thing that he gave us and entrusted us with. You see this at the heart of the early Christian and Jewish communities. The problem with withdrawal or the value of holiness is when otherness becomes more important than others. When distinctiveness or difference overcomes others. And you see this in Corinth, the early Jewish converts have stopped having dinner at other people's homes, they've stopped engaging other people's with the story of the gospel out of fear and a desire to preserve something within themselves. And all of a sudden, their distinctiveness, their otherness, has overcome others. And their holiness is now determined by separation from people, not connection to God. So that's one option on the table. You can withdraw. You can separate yourself from people. You can push others away in order to define and hold on to otherness. The other side of that, though, is assimilation. This is what happens to the non-Jewish Corinthians who convert. But they experience the gospel story, and it is like this big, bold message of grace. And so they're like, oh, God has covered all things. Everything is okay. We are free in Christ to do whatever we want so we can engage at the table however we want. We can live the kind of life however we want. We can enter into society in any way, in any means, because grace covers all things. we're free. The value right at the heart of that is the beautiful gospel value of freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit yourself to a yoke of slavery like it's empowering and freeing. As this freedom is lived out in the early Corinthian church, it begins to look like sameness and acceptance. Corinthian believers, they can shop at the markets, they can eat whatever meat they want to, they can go to dinner wherever they want to. And there is something so beautiful about that because it's spreading the story of Jesus. Like the Corinthian church is exploding. People are coming to know who Jesus is because these people are willing to go into all places and tell the story. The problem is that when freedom becomes the primary value, otherness gets lost into others. And the thing that God has given us and entrusted us with, the story that he is calling us to tell, the way of life that he is inviting us to participate in, oh, it gets lost. And then it's a question of whether or not we're doing anything useful at all. So you have these two options that are kind of running on the side of Paul's story. You have people who withdraw from culture altogether and put otherness above others. And then you have this other side of the story who assimilate in, and their otherness just gets lost into others. And Paul looks at both of these engagements and says, you have good and right values, but wrong priorities. In 10 verse 23, he says this. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The first thing that Paul does in this moment is reveal that we are having a different kind of conversation, right? One group makes everything about moral distinctiveness, and so the questions they ask are, is this wrong or is this right? The other makes everything about freedom, and so the questions are always about yes and no, and Paul just says, those are the wrong questions to ask altogether in this moment. He's like, does it build up? Is it good? Or as Paul will say in more detail at the beginning of this section in chapter 8, So Paul's like, I just want to have a different conversation altogether. Like you have knowledge that leads you into a certain kind of life. Great, that's fine. But it's actually leading to arrogance and puffed up. The question that I want to ask is, is it loving? Is the way that you engage, is the way that you think, is the kinds of questions you ask, are they driven by the primacy of love? Is it loving? Right, Paul blows up both parties. In the name of holiness, he's like, you've replaced love with distinctiveness. And then you've pushed other people away. But that's also true of the freedom party. He's like, you have replaced love with acceptance and you have become the other. And who has been forgotten in both instances? Oh, others. He's like, in the name of your own pride and arrogance and need, you have replaced the others with yourself and forgotten them all together. This is the question that's running all throughout the book of Corinthians. In fact, Corinthians is moving towards this very famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, which is, you know, the passage on love. And it is a passage that we overuse at weddings and underuse when we talk about everyday life, which is what the passage is about. Paul's not actually talking about weddings, though it applies. Paul is talking about how you eat and how you practice unity how you gather at the table, how you gather together in a community and kind of practice the gift amongst you. And the question that 1 Corinthians 13 is asking is, is it loving? When you gather together, is that moment about love? Does it empower you to love? Does it help you love? Is it loving? That's the primary question. As you practice unity, is it unity in love? Because you can practice unity under some hateful ideology. And so Paul's like, is it loving? And even as you eat meat that is sacrificed to idols, is it loving? How does the church answer questions it does not have easy answers to? Well, it first has to ask the question, is it loving? Does it build up? Does it seek the good of our neighbors? Does it enable me to love more? All other values are submitted under the primacy of love. Now I think Paul in this moment can hear there's going to be some questions about what he just said. He begins to flush it out and kind of answer some of the questions. So in chapter 9 verse 1 he says this. He says, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle?" Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Do I not have the right to eat and drink? So again, he, he reframes the conversation. Paul's like, I am free. I have the right. I can eat, I can drink, I can he goes on to say, like, I could marry and bring a wife with me on ministry. I could get paid for the work that I'm doing on behalf of the church. He's like, I have a right to all of these things. I am free to do all of these things. But then he goes on to add, but I give them up willingly, saying, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings.'" He's like, I am free. Christians are free. The gospel is freeing but Christian freedom outside of love is useless. It's pointless. It has to live in submission to love. And when it does, when freedom exists in submission to love, it becomes surrender for the sake of others. Paul's like, I can do whatever I want, but the best expression of my freedom is when I surrender my freedom in love for the sake of others. It is about moving towards the other. It is about seeking their needs above my own. He's like, Christians are free. They are so free that they can surrender their freedom in the name of love. The ultimate expression of Christian freedom is surrender. When freedom lives in submission to love, it looks like surrender. Surrender that we see in Jesus. He moves away from Godship into service. True Christian freedom is surrender. Now, I can imagine that Paul is worried that the withdrawal party is like, yes, that's right. Right? You you, you nailed it. So then Paul turns to address them as well, and he says that Christians are to be distinct. Like, that's true. But distinction without love is also useless. And Paul focuses in on this by pointing us to the table. And as he's having a conversation about the table at the beginning of chapter 10, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Right? He, he names the people. He's like, hey, you have this instinct to pursue holiness, to run away from idolatry. He's like, that's good. That's right. That's true. You should run away from things that corrupt. You should run away from things that misuse power, that, that are corrupting, that would, that would aim you at different desires because it, it changes the way you live. He's like, that's a good, right impulse. Run away from idolatry. But then he adds on to it. He says, I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. The question that Paul is asking in that moment is why do we gather at the table? What makes it significant? What makes it distinct? What underlies our distinction? For Paul, we are distinct because we participate in the body of Jesus. We are distinct and unique because we are participating in the kingdom of Jesus. We are distinct because we are living out a different reality In the here and now, distinction by itself is nothing. We are distinct because we believe that a different reality is possible, empowered by the reality and good news of Jesus. And as we practice the table and as we gather together, we believe that we're making that thing true. He's like, that's what leads to distinction. Not a need to withdraw, not a need for some arbitrary moralism. He's like, you're distinct because you're living something out. See, distinction by itself is useless. But distinction that lives in submission to love becomes participation in the work of Jesus. Distinction in submission to love becomes participation in the work of Jesus. But holiness is not about separation from others. It is about connection to Jesus. And so when we are connected to Jesus, then we are embodying the thing he's doing in the world, making it a reality, witnessing to him. That's what it means to be the church, to participate in the work of Jesus. What Paul is doing in, in this moment is he's trying to reframe all of the values that we have in light of love. It's never about withdrawal or assimilation. Withdrawal and assimilation in and of itself is fear driving our practices. It's pride driving our practices. He says, no, no, no. It's about surrender and participation because that's love driving your practices. What happens when we do that? Well, Paul goes on to answer. He said, there's something tangible that comes out of participating and submitting in love. He says this in 10 verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink, Right? He's not answering the question. He says, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they, be, that they may be saved. Therefore be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul saying, love, participation, And surrender leads to the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, throughout Scripture, that that phrase is loaded with a few different meanings. One is it means to make Him known, to declare who He is, to to proclaim the goodness of Him to the world around us, to witness to the things that He's doing. That's one level. Glorify means to proclaim. Glorify also means to, to adore and to praise. But at the heart of the term glory is the presence of God. All throughout Scripture, when when God's glory is referred to, it's connecting to his presence. It'll say the glory of God come to dwell in the temple, right? Or the glory of God actually left the temple and traveled to Babylon. You'll have these moments and these imagery, and it's, it's a connection to the presence of God, the weightiness of who he is. And so what Paul is saying is when we practice the things of the church, we participate in the way of Jesus, we are the presence of Jesus. He'll literally go on in just a few chapters to call us the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2, he will see that we are a living temple. Jesus will say in Matthew 18, he's like, if you practice this table thing together, I'll be in the midst of you. And on June 8th, we're gonna, June 9th, we'll celebrate Pentecost when God said, Oh, I'm sending my spirit to be in the midst of you, to empower you, to be my presence. When we, in love, participate in the work that God is doing and surrender our rights, will we become the presence of Jesus in the world? That is what it means to be the church. To be the presence of Jesus, extending the work of Jesus to all places. And Missy, oh man, that will get us into some trouble. So as we close up, there's a few questions that we have to ask ourselves. And first is maybe just simply, where do we need to submit to love? Where do we need to submit to love? Where do we need to reevaluate our lives and ask, does this help me love? Does this empower me to love? Like it's like think about my job. Does this help me love? Is it loving? So think about the money that's in my bank. Does this help me love? Is it loving? So I think about my engagement with technology. Does it help me love? Is it loving? Where do you need to submit to love? And if love is not the priority or the value in that moment, what is taking priority? Is it freedom, difference, distinction? What is the value that tends to rule your life, and where do you need to submit that value to love? Where do you need to surrender to love? Where we have freedom. Paul says it. But where do we need to express our greatest freedom of being able to surrender that in order to love? Let me see, what would it look like for you to participate in the way of Jesus as opposed to just assimilate? So as you think about the meal that you have at your home, or you think about having people over, or as you think about the way you work, or you think about the, like, the things that you're doing in your life, what does it look like for that practice, for those moments to be about participating in the kingdom of Jesus as opposed to just disappearing into others? What does it look like for you right now to participate in the work of Jesus? And you take those questions and then would you bring those questions to the table? Because it is the primary symbol of where Jesus submitted himself to love. surrendered his rights to participate in the work of God. to extend his presence to all places so that we might know who he is, be called into the work that he's doing and then join in inviting others. This is where we practice it. This is where we taste and see that it's good. So, Missio, bring those questions. Where do you need to participate in the work of Jesus? Bring it to this moment where you get to participate and know the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that every single moment, every single moment you submit to love, you give up power, prestige, power in order to enter into service. You reorder how we even think about values in order to make love a reality, in order to extend your presence to all places so that we might know who you are, join in the work that you're doing, and extend your presence with you. So God, as we hear this story, as we experience you today, shape us into a people like you. God, you submit to love, who participate in you. In your name we pray. Amen.